people were on edge. You couldn't have set the stage better for something to sort of push them over the edge. I, I kind of liken it to a, uh, you know, a heavyweight fighter with a glass jaw. America at that time, we were a heavyweight fighter, but we had a glass jaw. In other words, if you just hit in just the right spot, you know, with, with enough force, you could take down this heavyweight person. And that's what, you know, Wells wound up doing with this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. In a way, Americans were very naive because they had almost just 100% trust in what they heard on the radio. If a news reporter said something on the radio, they believed it. You know, they really had a trust in this new form of media. This had no concept of someone using this in any other way other than just to tell them what was really happening. Further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. It really doesn't matter how many people heard the broadcast. That's not the point. The point was that the people who heard the broadcast, many of them, then ran out and told other people what was happening, what they thought was happening. And so it sort of spread like wildfire. That grinning, glowing globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 8, and I am very excited to be unleashing this installment of the program on you folks, because we are celebrating the 75th anniversary of the legendary War of the Worlds radio broadcast, which aired on October 30th, 1938. Thankfully, I managed to get all of the timing done right for this episode, and you are actually listening to this program on the 75th anniversary of the War of the Worlds broadcast. To celebrate the occasion, we are welcoming David Accord, who is the author of the new book, When Mars Attacked, which details the infamous Orson Welles program, which set off a panic throughout America. Over the course of this conversation, we are going to discuss Orson Welles' remarkable childhood, his early life and his rise to fame, as well as the explosion of radio in the 1930s, and how those two threads crossed with the War of the Worlds broadcast. We'll also find out about all the various elements which came together to make the War of the Worlds panic happen, and we'll separate the facts from the fiction as to what actually went down on October 30th, 1938, and what the intent behind it all was. We'll also delve into the conspiracy theories surrounding the broadcast, as well as connections between War of the Worlds and the UFO phenomenon. Altogether, this is an episode which likely will provide BOA audio listeners with a wealth of new information 
on the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast, which has entrenched itself in urban legend, paranormal lore, and pop culture history for the last 75 years, as David Accord tells us about when Mars attacked. For those of you who are unfamiliar with David Accord, please allow me to take a moment and provide you with a little background on him. David Accord is the author of When Mars Attacked, Orson Welles, The War of the Worlds, and the radio broadcast that changed America forever. He is an accomplished author and veteran Washington, D.C. journalist, having spent more than a decade covering complex federal regulations in the nation's capital for various business publications. He has also served as managing editor and editor-in-chief, respectively, for two international business publishing firms. He is currently the Director of Communications and Executive Editor for a National Trade Association in the D.C. area. David is also the author of What Would Lincoln Do? Lincoln's Most Inspired Solutions to Challenging Problems and Difficult Situations, as well as Success Secrets of Sherlock Holmes, Life Lessons from the Master Detective. He lives in Arlington, Virginia, and received his BFA from Arkansas Tech University in 1993 and his MFA in English from Penn State University in 1996. You can find out more about David's book at www.whenmarsattacked.com. Pretty simple, all one word, whenmarsattacked.com. Check it out. And with all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 16th, 2013. David Accord, talking about when Mars attacked Orson Welles, the War of the Worlds, and the radio broadcast that changed America forever on BOA Audio Season 8. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 8. And we are celebrating a historic anniversary here on the program this week. Hopefully, if my haphazard scheduling works out properly, you are listening to this on October 30th, which happens to be the 75th anniversary of the infamous 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast from Orson Welles. And to celebrate the occasion, we've got author David Accord here on the program. He is the author of the new book, When Mars Attacked, which is all about that 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast. And it's earned a place in paranormal lore over the years. It's really earned a place in pop culture lore and and really society in general. War of the Worlds, uh, it's supplanted the original book in a lot of ways. It's become this sort of catchphrase for mass hysteria. And as I said, it's celebrating its 75th anniversary here this year in 2013, and thankfully David has put out a new book covering that monumental radio broadcast. So he reached out to me this summer. He's a longtime BOA audio listener and definitely somebody I wanted to have on the program here in Season 8 to discuss War of the Worlds and what it all means, not just for the world of the paranormal, but for society in general. So welcome to the program, David. It's going to be a fun and fascinating conversation, I'm sure. Tim, it's just it's a great honor to be here. As you mentioned, I've been listening to you 
ever since season one. So I'm just, I'm just really happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. And now you're part of the lexicon of BOA Audio. So welcome That's to great. Yeah. the club. <laughs> and I should mention you can find the book uh, via whenmarsattacked.com. That's the website. Once again, the book is When Mars Attacked. And I honestly, folks, absolutely loved this book. I cannot put it over enough. It was tremendous. I'm a huge Orson Welles fan, but really only Citizen Kane. Uh, that's still like my favorite movie of all time, and I've seen it probably a dozen times at least. Uh, I just absolutely love that film and really learned a whole lot more about not just Orson Welles, but sort of what led him into Citizen Kane, which, of course, was this big War of the Worlds broadcast. So I, I really loved the book and learned a tremendous amount about it, and it was fantastically well-written. I really can't put you over enough for that, David. You never know what you're well, going to get sometimes with these books, that, but I love that's it. The greatest, that's the greatest compliment I could receive. Thank you. No, no problem, and I mean it. I'm not blowing smoke up your butt here, man. I, I mean it. It was <laughs> awesome. So, you know, traditionally, as we go here, starting out, give us a little bit of your bio, your background. Who is David Accord? And how did you get interested in the esoteric, and, you know, how did all this lead to when Mars attacked? Sure. Well, I am a, uh, I'm a writer and an editor. I live here in the Washington, D.C. area. I've uh, been here for about 15 years, and um, I've actually been interested in sort of my two uh, uh, really great interests have been uh, sort of the paranormal, you know, and cryptozoology and UFOs on the one hand, and old-time radio on the other. Mm. I've been interested in both of those since I was uh, just a kid. I can remember, you may remember these two, the old uh, Daniel Cohen paperback books from the uh, from the 70s and the 80s about, you know, Bigfoot and mysterious creatures and things like that. Um, I just, I gobbled those up. In fact, I still have them somewhere. Um, so I was really interested in that. And then when I was about 10 years old, actually, my parents bought me uh, on cassette, this is way before CDs, um, a copy of the uh, the War of the World broadcast. And I didn't know that much about it, but they said they thought I would really enjoy it. And I literally uh, wore those that tape out. <laughs> I must have listened to it over the years, you know, 50 times. I mean, it, there was, you know, I pretty much had it memorized. I was just, it would just blew me away. Yeah. And even though I knew it was fake, I, every time I listened to it, you know, I was still just amazed. And, of course, I wanted to find out, you know, more about it and and uh, and why people, you know, thought it was real, and uh, it really sparked my interest in in Orson Welles and science fiction and old time radio in general, and has really just kept up with it over uh, the years. And um, about about three years ago, um, I knew that the 75th anniversary was coming up, and I decided to look around for some books. And there's been some other books written on the subject, but I felt with my background in uh, reporting here in D.C. and editing that I could uh, maybe take a stab at doing my own book on it because I felt like there were some aspects of it that hadn't really been um, illuminated mm. before. And also, since I was living in D.C., which is home to the uh, National Archives, I decided to uh, to make use of that. I went to the National Archives and just found... Uh, Wow, a treasure trove of material that had just been sitting there for years and that really I couldn't find it. Uh, other books and other uh, things that had been written about uh, the broadcast, they hadn't really got into these very much. I mean, the National Archives has the actual copies of every letter 
of complaint that they received oh, wow. uh, about the broadcast back in 1938. And, and not photocopies, the originals. You can even just handle the originals. You know, <laughs> Hundreds of these letters, and there was, I found an internal report from the FCC about the broadcast and all the stuff that was going on. I put all of that in the book. And so that's when I knew I was really on to something. And that was about two and a half years ago. And it took me about two, two, two and a half years to, to write the book. Okay. And so I've sort of come full circle as after starting out, you know, 30 odd years ago when I was 10 years old listening to it. Now I've, I've written a book about it. Yeah. And I, and I written the book on it. Yeah. Right. Well, like I said, I mean, I, I it, it's interesting and I, it would be, you know, uh, obviously by the time the interview concludes, it'll be, uh, a non-workable poll in a sense, but it would be interesting to sort of take a poll on the people, you know, listening right now. And if, if they're anything like me, you know, you've kind of heard the story of War of the Worlds and the broadcast and everything, but there was so much detail involved in that that, that I had never even heard of before, which was really interesting. And, again, kudos to you for that because it really, in a way, it's kind of like this conversation, I hope, will sort of separate the fact and the fiction from War of the Worlds because – Well, yeah. That's yeah. Great. I'm glad you picked up on that because that's actually one of the reasons I, I wanted to write the book is, you know, so many – you know, over the years, you're right, there's been a lot of sort of like uh, folklore that's been built up mm. around the broadcast. And one of the, you know, things that drove me crazy and still drives me crazy is that they – continue to refer to it as sort of a hoax. You know, they'll call it the War of the Worlds hoax or the hoax broadcast when, you know, implying that it was intentional. Right. Implying it was a practical joke or a prank, which is something else that you'll hear a lot, which, in fact, as I say in the book, you know, that's one of the sort of myths that I wanted to debunk is that, you know, and this may, you know, surprise a lot of people. It's like, it wasn't intentional, <laughs> you know. I know that, you know, Orson Welles himself sort of tried to um, muddy the record on this in, in later years, but it was it was an accident. It was a mistake. They really didn't mean to do it. And I think that's one of the more surprising things that people, you know, bring up to me about the, about the book when they read it. It's like, well, I didn't, I always thought that he did it on purpose. Right, <laughs> and right. And he set out to, like, scare people, you know, intentionally, and like, no, he was just trying to produce a really good radio play and, um, you know, through a series of events, which we'll go through, it sort of got out of control. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely, uh, I hadn't really wrapped my mind around it, but that's, that you kind of hit the nail on the head, especially uh, like what I was saying earlier. I had always kind of thought that it was all a, a work, as they say in, in, the, in the wrestling business, you know, that right. it was all planned out, but apparently uh, that wasn't the case. But we'll we'll get into that. Let's sort of ease into the story here. We'll start with... The, the background on Orson Welles, because as I said, I'm a big fan of Citizen Kane, I, and I had heard that, you know, elements of Citizen Kane, uh, were informed by his background, but I couldn't really believe just how eerily similar it was to the life of Charles Foster Kane, uh, his early life, and, uh, just how sad, uh, his life was in a lot of ways. It was really, uh, it, it was like a combination of sad and, and bizarre, that he was like this bizarre sort of child genius. And then, you know, I'm throwing a lot at you here, so <laughs> bear with me. But, you know, he's got the sad early life. He's a child genius. And then uh, you throw in uh, on top of that this all this sort of apocryphal stuff that we don't we can't really even know for sure what what's fact what's fiction about his early childhood, which makes him even more sort of like of this like mythical character in a lot of ways. Right. I call him uh, a trickster in the book <laughs> because <laughs> in many ways, you know, Orson Welles, he is the ultimate trickster because he was he was fascinated with magic and sleight of hand. 
and um, he was, and he really enjoyed, you know, pulling tricks on people. And I think that's one of the reasons why people assume that uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast was an intentional trick, is because sort of uh, Orson Welles' um, personality and his persona was this sort of like wily old man, you know, and um, sort of always with a kind of a smirk on his face. But um, but yeah, he it's just a fascinating. He had a really fascinating background. He was born in uh, Wisconsin. In uh, 1915, very um, upper middle class or just outright wealthy family, um, but you know, very mismatched parents. His father was sort of this eternal bachelor and out, you know, drinking and gambling all the time. And people were shocked when he uh, decided to get married. And he married someone who was his polar opposite, and she was very cultured and refined. And um, they had uh, one son, uh, Richard who um, did not turn out well. It's very, his his story is very murky, exactly why there were so many problems with him. I think there were, um, he was in, institutionalized for much of his life, and they pretty much um, just cut him out of their life uh, early on. Hmm. And so uh, when Orson was born uh, a few years later, they sort of pinned all of their hopes on him, you know, and they yeah. sort of, I think, you know, I'm doing a little psychoanalyzing hmm. here, but I think they saw this as their chance to get things right, quote unquote, you know, and right. sort of get in there and uh, do things right this time with Orson. But <laughs> what they wound up doing was just spoiling him rotten, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so he was a spoiled child, but he was also just incredibly smart. Now, as you said, it's really hard to separate facts from fiction because Wells was, you know, he enjoyed sort of tricking people, and he told all these stories about his life, and he told them up until the day he died, and a lot of them just aren't true. Mm. And so it's hard, and he told, he loved fooling his biographers, you know, and telling them the stories and getting them to print things that weren't true. So it's hard to know, but some of these stories about him, you know, speaking in complete sentences and, you know, when he was maybe one and a half, two years old and things like that. We don't know if those are true, but it is the case that he was very, very smart. And he was very uh, um, aware of what was going on. He was very adult-like from an early age Mm. and, um, you know, could converse with adults and um, was very talented and obviously in terms of acting and writing and you know, his mother, being a very cultured person, introduced him to the classics of literature at a very young age. And it all sounds great, but as he said, it was also very tragic. And here's where we get the parallels. You're absolutely right. Uh, when you read about his life, you see, okay, well, now we know where some of those things came from in Citizen Kane. Um, his mother died when he was nine years old. Um, it had, a, you know, a deep, deep impact on him. His father uh, was an alcoholic who lingered for a few years after that, but um, died when Orson was 15. He was sent off to private school at a young age, uh, grew up really in in a private school um, away from his father. And uh, just, yeah, it was just, you. if you had to create, you know, sort of like a fictional character, an interesting fictional character, you know, (laughs) you couldn't do better than than Orson Welles' real life. I mean, it's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like I said, it encompasses a whole range of emotions. Now, you you, you mentioned here uh, the brother Richard, which of course uh, I'd never heard of before. Uh, what, what did we know? What like became of him? Because obviously Orson Welles went on to become this, you know, world famous celebrity and 
sort of a, a you know, kind of a really obviously uh, a world famous strange kind of celebrity. <laughs> right. As years right. went on, but did, did, was there contact between them? Do we know anything about that relationship? Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting because we we don't, and um, you know, in in the course of this book, writing this book, I poured over all the biographies, and there's really not a lot of information about. Now he had some contact with Richard. Uh, when he was a young boy, because Richard was actually, before he was institutionalized, um, probably in his teens, he was sent to the same private school that Orson uh, eventually went to. Mm-hmm. But he caused so much of trouble there that he was kicked out, and then he um, he was kind of homeless for a while, and he just sort of wandered around, and finally... Um, there's speculation that he was basically schizophrenic. And, of course, in that time... Um, it wasn't really understood, and um, he was he was just uh, institutionalized, and he sort of pops up here and there throughout Orson's uh, life. Um, I found a couple of references. Again, I wasn't really um, 100% satisfied with them, so I didn't put them in the book, but I found a couple of references in other books about Wells that um, Richard, you know, contacted him to sort of out of the blue maybe Oh gosh, when Orson was in his 30s or 40s, you know, he hadn't hadn't heard from him in years, and there had been some rumors that he was dead, and uh, he just sort of contacted him, and we don't know if anything came of that. We do know that for you know Orson was a very you know he, he loved to talk about himself and his family, but he did not talk about his brother that much. So it remains this kind of um, interesting mystery. You know, biographers and researchers have been able to find out so much about Orson Welles. But that's the one area that still remains um, kind of murky. And I don't really know. You have to assume at this point uh, Richard has passed away. Yeah. Um, but I, we, I don't know when or where. I couldn't really find any, you know, concrete details there, or at least any details I felt comfortable enough to put in the book. Hmm. Okay. And the other, the other sort of like uh, biographical mystery that was really weird uh, that you mentioned in the book that. You can see in the book that never received a full, proper explanation, uh, as far as we know, was that uh, we're sort of skipping ahead a little bit to, in the life of Wells, but uh, he, he got married, and him and his wife had a daughter, whom they named Christopher, and they, and no one really quite knows why that went down. <laughs> and this was this drove me crazy. I'm so glad you brought this point because it's a you know it's a long book and there's a lot of these details and I you know I just did you know research from one end to the other. But this is the one thing I could not find out. And I said, well, certainly someone has you know said something about why they would name a daughter Christopher, hmm. you know, and not. Christina or something else, you know, and I just, it, it, it was a relatively minor point, you know, and it had nothing to do with the War of the Worlds, but it just drove me crazy, you know, because I wanted to find out the answer, and there's just really, I could not find any, you know, it's probably as soon as this airs, someone will email and say, oh, hey, this is why, but in all the uh, material that I collected and all the research I did, even the biographers were like, yeah, Kind of interesting. He named her Christopher. <laughs> but yeah. He didn't really go into why. So um, it does. Yeah. It's just one of those quirky, quirky things. And there was probably some clever reason for it at the time, but I just haven't been able to uncover it. Yeah. Yeah. See, that would be somebody that would be interesting to try and track down. She's actually written um, a memoir about uh, life with her father, which I have not read. It came out. Um, I want to say about a year, a year and a half ago. Oh, really? Okay. 
Yeah, and yeah, she she would definitely have some some great stories to tell. I'm sure. I presume she does not explain the origins of her name, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said, well, fine. See, that might be the that might be the uh, the reason to buy the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. And find out why. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I'll sort of uh, try and fill in a lot of details. We want folks to pick up this book, of course, so we're, we're trying not to, uh, you know, we're going to be... Spill all the beans. Yeah, yeah we're not going <laughs> to spill all the beans, but, you know, so so I'll sort of do a, a rough sketch of, of, of the narrative as we go along here, just uh, so folks can keep track of what's going on. So so Wells bounces around, uh, you know, he wants to, he, he becomes immersed in sort of the acting scene at this private school, and then he... Ends up over in Ireland where he lies and says he's a big Broadway star and ends up in plays in Ireland uh, for about a year or so. Then comes back and, and struggles to to make it in theater and can't get a break in Broadway. Bounces around the country for a while. Then finally gets into Broadway and this kind of coincides with the rise of radio. Um, which you do a fantastic job. I, I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised because you said you know you're an old time radio fan, and it's uh, you know it's probably sacrilege here that I'm I'm in sort of the modern era of radio, and I don't really know too much about the origins of radio. <laughs> so it was it was a, a great learning experience for me to sort of learn about the rise of radio, and and and, and it was interesting too in in, in sort of comparison with. Because uh, I've seen sort of the rise of the internet, and I'd heard about how you know TV sort of gave rise, and and uh, you know radio was all all uh, reclamped about what to do about TV. It's like always one new medium is always at war with the previous one. That was really exactly. interesting. Yeah, the parallels, the, the parallels, you're, you're you're spot on. I mean, when the internet came around, we had the same the same arguments being made as when uh, TV started to eclipse radio. Yeah, it's really interesting how, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right, right. And it, it's it's interesting, like, you talk about how uh, you don't really think about it. And in a lot of ways, again, uh, you know, I guess w- with the exception of the, the vast proliferation of pornography you see on the Internet, you can kind of see the same rudimentary early stages in radio, where at first they were like, oh, this will be a good educational tool for people. They can learn things that, you know, they're airing lectures from college professors on, on the radio when it first started out. And it was like, well, there's not going to be any ads. We don't, we don't need ads on this thing. And it's like, just like the early internet. And now it's like, you know, who cares about educating people? You know, I want to, I want to put cartoons on there and stuff like that. So it's, it's, and make money. Exactly. And, and then, yeah, and then slam it with ads all over the place. Yeah. So no, radio it was very similar, uh, the early days. It, it, it really was. I mean, it started out, they had these very lofty, idealistic expectations. You know, this would be a way. And in a way, they were right. It was a great equalizer. I mean, radios, after they, you know, they started out, they were sort of like for tinkerers and inventors, you know, and you had to be able to build your own radio, basically, in the early days. And so it was sort of a limited market. But when um, these mass uh, radios started being mass produced, and they were relatively cheap, um, and so pretty much anyone could could get one even if you were relatively poor. So they saw it as a great equalizer, as a way that both, you know, they could reach the poor and, they, and people who didn't have, you know, access to to go see an opera, you know, or go see a symphony or listen to, a, as you said, a college professor. They could, well, we can bring that to them. And that was very quaint and very nice, and it lasted about 30 seconds before <laughs> these guys realized that, wow, we can make a lot of money. <laughs> we can make a lot of money. And so um, 
they can make a lot of money broadcasting and they can make a lot of money, you know, building radios and selling them. So it, the commercialization of radio happened. Um, and it's really interesting. I talk about it a little in the book. It really, Orson Welles, you know, his sort of rise sort of parallels the rise of radio. They sort of came up at the same time. And he sort of rose through the ranks of Broadway and then crossed over to radio at just about the perfect time, just when it was really uh, kind of hitting critical mass. And um, he was just, he was, you know, in the right place at the right time. Um, he, ha- he had already built up a reputation. As he said, he had some trouble on Broadway in the beginning, but he sort of, uh, he persevered. And before long, he was known as this sort of wonder kind, this sort of boy genius. Um, he was the savior of the American theater, and um, he was able to transition into radio. And originally he did it because he needed the money. Hmm. Um, but he, he quickly found that he, and it was considered, radio was considered kind of a lowbrow thing. And a lot of uh, early radio actors um, were actually Broadway actors. And they wanted a legitimate, you know, legitimate careers on the stage. And um, they would do radio, but they wouldn't really admit that they did it, you know, yeah. uh, because they just thought it was kind of beneath them. And they just did it for the money so that they could, you know, support themselves while they went after, quote, unquote, you know, serious work. Well, what's interesting about Wells is that he quickly saw and say, hey, I can really do something with this. And I think it goes back to sort of this was a marriage of both sort of the lowbrow and the highbrow. Uh, for him because he grew up with a very highbrow mother and a very lowbrow father. And so he was exposed to both. He was exposed to kind of like the middle culture, the pop culture of the day, and the very highbrow. And he saw a way to meld those two. He saw a way that I can make, I can take my talents as a quote-unquote serious actor, I can bring them to radio, and I can do things um, that, that really haven't been done before. And boy, was he right, <laughs> as, as we'll see. Um, but yeah, that's... Um, he, uh, I think he was just he really uh, in the right place at the right time. In addition to that, we can't. Uh, we it would be remiss not to mention just the intense work ethic. Because as I said, I, you know, I, I'm beating a dead horse here. But the the things I learned from this book, you know, like I, most people I think probably think he went from theater to radio to movies, but really, as you point out in the book, you know, he's doing radio like all day. And then he would go and do theater at night, just in, in, in exhaustive workload. He was just full of energy. I mean, he was like a human caffeine pill, kind of, you know. Um, people just, and so many, you're, you're exactly right to key in on that, because so many people who grew up around him and worked with him noticed this, like, when does this guy sleep? You know, he he would just go and go and go, and he would do... Gosh, I don't know how many radio shows in a day, four, five, six radio shows. And there's a great anecdote that, you know, he would have to get across town from one studio to another, and he would actually hire an ambulance. This was in New York City in the mid-1930s. And he had to get across town very quickly to another studio. And, of course, there was no tape at that time. Everything was live. And so he had to be there. And he would actually hire an ambulance and to take him across town. And of course, people would get out of the way because they would hear the siren and they would think, you know, they were taking someone who was morally ill to the hospital, but it was just him, you know, just had to, he had to get to his radio day. And so after a full day of radio acting, then he would, and he took all the money he earned and just uh, fed it back into his theatrical uh, work. You know, he, he was, uh, he started 
uh, theatrical troops and he funded his own plays and rented the venues and did all this stuff and so it cost a lot of money. But yeah, he was probably working 18, 19, 20 hour days and just sort of, you know, subsisting on coffee. Oh God. Do we know, is there any sort of like attribution for why he pushed himself so hard back then or was it just, just to fund the theater aspect of his life, so he sort of did both, or, I mean, because yeah. at some point you would think that someone, you know, doing that well would rest on their laurels or just be happy in in the radio end of things or something. Right, and he was making a lot of money. I think he saw himself, I think he kind of, in a way, and again, this is just my personal opinion, others can have their own, and there's a lot of people out there who know a lot more about Orson Welles than I do, but uh, I think in one respect he sort of, he bought into his own publicity. I mean, once people started calling him, you know, the savior of the American theater, he kind of started to believe it. Hmm. And uh, he he would uh, he definitely was an arrogant person. He had a very outsized ego. He thought he was special because you got to remember he had been told from the time he could comprehend language that he was incredibly special. He was unique. He was he was just this fantastic person. And because he had this rather unusual intellect at such an early age, he was treated like a genius. Almost from the time he could, you know, uh, could remember, people, adults, you know, sort of treated him special. So I think it was sort of baked into the cake a little bit mm. in terms of his psyche. I mean, he thought of himself as someone who was going to change the world. And I also think, you know, speaking of the energy, I honestly, I think it was just... It was a, a physiological thing. I think he was probably a little bit of a manic person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because we can see that, you know, and again, his brother with with the psychological problems and um, his parents who weren't the, didn't have the greatest mental health as well. So I, I think you see a little bit of that. I think it was just a lot of manic energy and this sort of, you know, belief that he was going to change the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, if he... If he was such a believer in his own remarkable powers, maybe it's sort of like you can't, he feels like he can't let them go to waste almost. Exactly. And I think he also saw pretty early on that he wanted to get to Hollywood eventually. Hmm. And I think he saw both, you know, he was sort of burning the candle at both ends. He saw both radio and the stage as a way to kind of raise his profile and get him out to Hollywood. It's remarkable to think about. Uh, you know, we're jumping way ahead into his history and his life, but it's it's kind of remarkable to think about how it all fell apart down the line for him. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. part of what makes him so fascinating and why so many people just are kind of obsessed with him is this unrealized potential. Mm. You know, this, this sort of you play this what-if game. You know, what if he just, you know, certain things hadn't happened. And, of course, he was, he had a lot to blame. He, had, he takes a lot of the blame for himself because, you know, he was not the easiest person to work with. But um, he was, you know, undeniably a genius. And for whatever reason, you know, he had financial problems and he had deals that fell through. And he never got to make the movies that he wanted to make. And you could think of, you know, imagine if he had had the backing that, say, a Steven Spielberg or a George Lucas has today he could have made, you know, a half dozen more movies at, at the same level as Citizen Kane. I mean, it would have been amazing. Exactly. Yeah. It's like he came along too early. You know, he could have been right. like Hitchcock or something. Exactly. Okay, so we sort of established, you know, he's 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 made a name for himself. He, from what I understand, based on the book, uh, I guess you could say he's one of the preeminent actors in, in the world of radio at this point, right? Yes. 
and he was he was working very steadily, and he was also you know very well known on on the stage as well on Broadway. Right, right. And most people obviously uh, recognize his work uh, with the Shadow. That seems to be the big uh, the big precursor right. to all of this, right? Exactly, and um, that's where he really kind of um, made his mark. And um, and that the shadow was really just sort of straight melodrama, very you know pulp fiction esque, and uh, he really kind of chewed up the scenery. If you listen to those old episodes, I mean, he really lays it on thick. And what's what's interesting is that he was so busy at the time that he would actually uh, he had a deal where he didn't have to show up until the day of the broadcast, and he didn't have to show up for rehearsals or anything else. He was so good that he could literally show up just as the show was going on the air, and a lot of times he hadn't even read the script. He would just read the lines cold and um, just get through the end of it, and he was paid um, an enormous amount of money for the time. I want to say about you know a couple thousand dollars an episode. I can't remember uh, exactly, but uh, he was paid a, a lot of money for this, uh, basically just a few minutes' work uh, each week. I wish I was making that kind of money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> For that kind of work. And it's, 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 as someone who sometimes has to read things on the air, it's a, a, a remarkable to hear somebody just get handed a script and go live like that. But I guess that's yeah. the skill involved. And, and he also just, he had a great voice. He had sort of a great kind of um, baritone voice and that uh, he could really emote. You know, hmm. you really, you listen to these episodes and you're like, okay. That is pretty good. You can imagine, you know, sitting in your darkened room, you know, back in the 30s, and there's no television, and there's really nothing else to do, and you're a kid, and you're you're listening to The Shadow, and um, the reason why he was, you know, paid so much money is because he, he really did a great job, and, you know, radio acting is hard, and not a lot of people could do it as well as he did. The cool part about this, in a lot of ways, is folks can go and listen to the War of the Worlds. I mean, so the whole thing's on YouTube. Uh, I was actually listening to a little bit of it today uh, in preparation for the interview, and it still holds up, which is amazing. It's still really, really good and compelling stuff. It's you're right. It's one of those few, regardless of how many times I've heard it, you just get pulled. I just get pulled in every time, and yeah, it's all over the place uh, on the internet. Um, everyone can go uh, and listen to it, and yeah, it's just it's just a fantastic piece of work. Now, is that public domain yet, or is that still uh, you know, in I the don't possession know. of it's someone? Just, it's, it's such a, it's sort of a murky issue with those. You know, you can find all these old-time radio shows on the Internet, you know, hmm. and they're just sort of floating around there for free, and the copyright status of a lot of them hasn't really, you know, it's kind of murky. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, I know the script for The War of the Worlds is copyrighted. The script for that broadcast, it was copyrighted by Howard Koch, who wrote it, he worked for Orson Welles, and I actually, you know, I reprint portions of it in my book, but I had to get permission from the estate of Howard Koch, you know, to be able to do that. So I know that the script is copyrighted, but, uh, you know, and this is something that um, Wells complained about back in the 70s because a lot of people started, you know, making old vinyl records, recordings of the broadcast back in the 60s and 70s and selling them, and he never saw any money <laughs> off of it. And um, it's uh, so it's out there. I don't know. I don't know the copyright status definitively. I mean, hmm. it's again, it's a case with a lot of those shows. You know, what's you can find the shadow and right suspense and you know, Loman Abner and all those shows out there. So, so let's set the stage a little bit here for the 1938 broadcast because there was a lot okay. going on in the world that sort of, I guess you could say, led to this reaction 
that, that befell the broadcast. Um, you know, there was the Depression, of course. Then there was uh, the, the percolating war in Europe. And then there was uh, what I learned here from the book was this sort of like meteor flap that happened in the summer before War of the Worlds, which I'd never heard of before uh, until right. reading the book. Yeah, it's something I came across when I was uh, doing uh, research for it. And, you know, I have to preface it by saying I don't think this was, you know, this was by no means this incredibly important event that, you know, really got people primed for it. But I think along with everything else, um, it certainly contributed. As you said, I think you look at you look at America in the late fall of 1938 when this broadcast occurred, and it's really, I mean, there's a, it's really a country on edge. Um, people are very concerned. First of all, the Great Depression isn't over yet. Um, it's still going strong. Um, things have started to pick up a little bit in terms of the economy, and then they cratered again. Um, in 1937, and so people, you know, people are just weary. It's been almost, you know, seven or eight years of just, you know, really horrible economic, um, news. And then you've got, um, Hitler rattling his saber over in Europe and threatening to, uh, invade, uh, Czechoslovakia. And, um, that, people were extremely concerned about that. They did not want, another world war, but yeah, it was looking more and more inevitable. And Hitler was um just this sort of, you know, bogeyman, you know, hmm. kind of for the world. And he was just this incredibly, incredibly scary figure. So yeah, people were on edge and I and they really I mean you couldn't have you couldn't have set the stage better for something to sort of push them over the edge. I I kinda liken it to a uh you know, a heavyweight fighter with a glass jaw, you know, sort of like America at that time, we were a heavyweight fighter, but we had a glass jaw. In other words, if you just hit in just the right spot, you know, with, with enough force, you could take down this heavyweight person, and that's what, you know, Wells wound up doing with this broadcast. But um, one of the other things I found, as you said, was this, you know, leading up to the broadcast across through, through the summer and the fall, and it was mainly it was across the country, different places, mainly around the oh the mid Atlantic and then the Northeast. There were a series of these uh, meteors and fireballs um, that were seen across the sky, and they made oh, they made news. They didn't really make national news, but they made regional news, and so. It was still to people in a good portion of the country, you know, um, there were these sort of strange meteor sightings, and the biggest one occurred uh, in the summer on June 24th in this little town about um, 35 miles north of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, and it was a, literally a 450 metric ton meteor, and it came down and it exploded in the sky over this tiny little town, I believe it's pronounced Chikara. Uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, it's just like, what is going on? I mean, you've got the depression, you've got bad economy, you've got threat of world war, and now you have these giant meteors exploding, over, you know, across the sky. And it was, it was, um, it was really something. And now the Pittsburgh meteor actually did make, uh, I would say, national news. It was in a lot of different uh, uh, newspapers. But you had others. You had uh, big meteor sightings up in. Uh, uh, Rochester, New York, um, they said it resembled a skyrocket. 
someone else, you know, at a planetarium said it was about half the size of the moon. So, I mean, it was really a big deal for people because they weren't used to this. So I think these sightings, and again, what you were doing was you had already sort of a rattled public. They were already somewhat unsettled. And um, now you've got them literally looking up at the sky and seeing strange things falling from the sky. And so I think in, in a very subtle, maybe kind of subconscious way, that that helps set the stage um, for the broadcast, too. Right, because it's important to note that there wasn't the UFO phenomenon as we know it uh, back then. People weren't thinking of flying saucers. So the idea of things falling from the sky, it had to be imprinted into their minds in a way, and it did with the meteor flap. So that would kind of lead them to say, you know, for this to become believable in a sense because they've seen and heard of these types of events already happening in the first place. You know what I mean? That's a great, yeah, it's a great point. The term flying saucer hadn't, wouldn't enter the, uh, the national lexicon until 1947, as you know, with the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Right. And, um, so it was, you're right. I mean, nowadays it's sort of ubiquitous in pop culture, you know, but in those days it wasn't, you know, you didn't really look up at the sky and, you know, think, oh, maybe I'll see a UFO tonight or maybe I'll see something strange. Um, it just wasn't, that wasn't a part of our, of their culture. So when this happened, it was really out of the ordinary. And one of the other things, too, is um, another sort of, I would call it kind of like, you know, ambient noise in, in the background, and culturally speaking, was that, um, you know, Mars, uh, the, the fascination with Mars, and there were some very uh, prominent astronomers in the, in the 19-teens and, and the 20s um, and who would, uh, you know, with the advent of these telescopes, now they could look up and they could see Mars and they could, you know, make out things on its surface. And you may recall, um, around this time, you had a lot of, you know, very well-respected scientists and astronomers saying, yeah, those are canals on Mars. Those are made by Martians. Hmm. Those, are, those are actually structures that we see. And you would see these pictures and you would, you know, they would have these um, uh, drawings of what they saw through the telescope. And, hey, if you're someone in 1920 and this, this smart person is telling you, look, those are canals and those aren't natural. Those are made by um, an intelligent race of beings. And they're up there and they have their own civilization. And a lot of people believed it. Now, it turned out they were wrong. They were 100% wrong, of course. Those canals are just sort of um, basically dried out riverbeds. They've been there for how many tens of millions of years. Now, some scientists sort of said this isn't the case, but the ones who said, yes, it is true, those are the ones who got the most uh, publicity. And they were saying, look, those are rivers. Those are canals, and there, there, there are Martian beings up there. So you have this sort of, and that that started around, gosh, I would say around the time, coincidentally, that, that Orson Welles was born, around like 1915, 1920, somewhere around there. So that was percolating in the atmosphere as well. And so I think people who had grown up during that era, by 1938, that was sort of, that was maybe in the back of their minds too. Yeah, yeah. To get into the mind, I guess you could say, uh, of the public at the time of the broadcast, it's important to note we, we live in a completely different world now, 75 years later. Um, you know, the whole idea of, like, breaking news, that's been done to death. Now it's now no one even takes breaking news seriously because half the time it's breaking news that isn't worthy of the <laughs> of the hype right. yeah. of, of breaking news. But back then, it was like a new – breaking news was a new phenomenon. It was this new 
thing where they would interrupt programs with with breaking news about the the strife in Europe at the time, and people would really be riveted by that. Exactly. It was um, people were you know for the first time people were hearing their news instead of reading it in the newspapers. And, of course, you know, the newspapers really saw radio as a threat. Um, but you're right. Um, first, they, you know, they had news broadcasters reading the news on the radio. And then with the advent of technology, um, they came up with these sort of little remote battery-operated um, radio uh, radio broadcast kits that these reporters, you know, they could take with them out into the field and broadcast, you know, back to the station. And so suddenly you could have people out away from the station, you know, over, you know, in Europe, as you say, reporting on what Hitler was doing, or the most famous example is of the uh, the Hindenburg airship, right, when, mm-hmm. it, when it crashed, and you had the, uh, the uh, uh, reporter who was just standing right in front of it watching this huge airship just crash to the ground, and he basically lost it, and he, you know, he has that, that famous phrase, oh, the humanity, you know, as he sees this thing crash, and um, people were listening to that live. And this is the first time that it ever happened. You're right that um, people you'd be listening to a broadcast, and all of a sudden people would just break in and say, "We have a breaking news situation here. We're going to go directly to our man in the field. He's going to tell you what's going on." That was relatively new. That had only been going on for a few years because they didn't really have the technology before then, um, and it was something that, in a way, Americans were very naive because. They almost, and we'll see this, um, how this came back to bite them, but they had almost just 100% trust in what they heard on the radio. If a news person, a news reporter said something on the radio, they believed it. Mm. You know, if they heard, you know, a reporter saying such and such is happening, they believed it. You know, they really had a trust in this new form of media. You know, they really just, you know, couldn't believe they had, this had no concept of someone using this in any other way other than just to tell them what was really happening. Exactly. Yeah. So when people look back on it and they're like, oh, how could they fall for that kind of thing? You really have to put yourself in their shoes where it's like no one had, I think you mentioned that there was a, a British program that was similar to the world, the war of the worlds that happened, uh, maybe a dozen years earlier or something like that. But, but that was really heavily satirical, and you kind of read between the lines, and even that caused a bit of a of a stir. And that was over in Britain, so it didn't really quite hit the American shores uh, that it had happened. And and you just kind of have to understand that people weren't, people weren't expecting someone to use that breaking news uh, style of reporting in an entertainment program. Half the time nowadays, people don't even believe the break. You know, they're not sure what to believe anymore. Right. I mean, reality show is kind of an oxymoron now because, you know, half the stuff you're seeing is scripted. You know, they're telling people what to say on these quote-unquote reality shows. Um, but back then, you're absolutely right. People had a very clear, you know, a clear black line separating what they perceived to be fact and what they perceived to be fiction. There was a, uh, you know, a, a, a radio drama. You know, it had music. It had a, you know, a very structured format. You know, a radio comedy had a, an audience. You, know, you could tell this wasn't real, whereas a, a, a news report had a, had a certain feel to it. And, you know, Orson Welles was the first person to kind of, as you said, use that sort of realistic technique and say, hey, that can be used in, in, in an artistic way. Yeah, that's really like the genius of a, of the whole 
endeavor in a lot of ways, you know, right. like thinking outside the box and, and a way to really create entertainment out of an unexpected place. It's a good old Yankee ingenuity, right? Exactly. <laughs> Something that already existed and finding a new way to, to use it. Exactly. And if I, if I recall for my, my film studies on Citizen Kane, that was what really, it, it still makes it one of the most critically acclaimed films ever, was that it, it really sort of it brought in a lot of elements that either had been done in sort of under-promoted films or, un, you know, underutilized films. You know, he would pick up little techniques and really popularized them uh, via Citizen Kane. So exactly, yeah, thing. and he did the same with uh, with Warrior Worlds. Yeah, you're exactly right. Okay, so we're we're at. Let's we'll sort of jump here now to October 30th, uh, 1978. Uh, not yeah, 38, 38. Yeah, <laughs> we'll jump ahead to October 30th, 1938. Um, I guess you make the point in the book, and we talked about it here earlier in the in the conversation. That this all it wasn't it wasn't planned, um, and and you really lay it out really well in the book. So like I guess just give us a little bit of a thumbnail and a sense of sort of how the broadcast came together. Because as you as you laid out in the book, it's not like they're all sitting around a smoky room and they're like, "Here's a great idea, we'll do it this way," and people will freak out. It was more like, I mean, it came down to the very end to the very end of, like, the afternoon before the show, before they really settled on the format of the program. I mean, it could have gone it could have gone completely differently. It could have gone in a completely different way. It could have been this mundane thing that nobody really appreciated and didn't quite capture the imagination of anybody, uh, except for these sort of, like, last-minute changes and things like that. No, you're exactly right. I mean, the idea to sort of present this in the form of a realistic news broadcast was a last-minute, desperate sort of Hail Mary attempt to resurrect um, a script that, honestly, none of them thought was really all that good. They had been working on it throughout the week. Orson Welles wasn't around hardly any. You know, Howard Koch, uh, did, uh, he, he wrote the script, but Wells was busy, you know, off, uh, at one of his other, he was, uh, getting ready for another Broadway play. And it was all, and this was the case with pretty much everything that Wells did. I mean, it was always very chaotic and last minute. And, um, they, they listened to a, uh, kind of a, basically a rough cut of the performance on, I believe it was Thursday night, and the performance, the actual broadcast was Sunday. So Thursday night they listened to it. They were sitting in Orson Welles' hotel room, and they recorded the rehearsal they had done earlier that day, and they listened to it, and they were like, wow, this is just not good. <laughs> and so what can we do? What can we possibly do to sort of change this around? And so, it, again, it's sort of who knows who actually came up with the idea. Uh, it was it was several people working together, John Houseman and Howard Koch and Orson Welles and a couple of others. Um, but eventually the idea was, hey, let's try and amp up this idea of this, this sort of novelty that we're seeing, we're hearing on radio of these uh, field reports and these breaking news. And this might be a way to really, uh, to really make this come alive because you'll recall – uh, the War of the Worlds, based on a novel, was written in 1898, and it was, it's, it's an interesting novel to read today. I think it's lost a lot of its kick just because it's written in this very sort of reserved British style, and the original story takes place in London and across Britain, and it's just, it's a very difficult uh, novel to kind of adapt for a, a mainstream American audience. 
So one of the first things they did was change the location, you know, and tried to make it as, as relatable as possible. They, they placed the Martian invasion not in London, but in uh, New Jersey, right? And so they made a lot of these changes, and they just kept making changes. And I think the guiding impulse for them was how can we make people, you know, relate to this book, this story that was written by a British guy, you know, 40 years ago. And so I think they just kept coming up with ideas. And my personal theory, and I, I label it as such because there's no real proof, but as I mentioned in the book, um, of prior to that, a few weeks prior to that, Wells uh, had a friend who was a fellow playwright named Archibald McLeish. And Wells had helped out McLeish, and he started in a couple of his plays. Um, actually, one in 1937 and one just, you know, um, I think a few months before the broadcast, if I remember correctly. But there's a couple of these plays that McLeish did that sort of had not exactly a uh, the same the same uh, idea of using a an actor to pretend to be a reporter. But he because McLeish's plays were very stylized and they were kind of obviously they were written in in verse, and so you knew you were hearing something that was obviously staged. Mm, yeah. But he did have a couple of programs where he started off, you know, with a radio announcer describing some crazy scene in front of him. And it was a very symbolic scene about, you know, war and fascism, and it obviously wasn't uh, real, but... Um, Wells actually starred in one of those, and then the other uh, the other play that used that technique actually was broadcast just a few days before uh, the War of the Worlds. So, one theory is that he sort of got that idea from McLeish and said, "You know what? I'm going to use that that uh, that tool of using a, a broadcaster, but I'm going to make it really, really realistic." Yeah, and so that's one one theory as to where that came from. It's amazing stuff. So they had no plan on it. <laughs> this is a lucky, <laughs> a tremendously lucky, and in some ways unlucky uh, right. and turn because, of events. Yeah, and if I could just, I'll very quickly, I'll just debunk some of the, some of this idea that it was a hoax. You have to remember, and a lot of people don't realize, is that um, his radio program is called the Mercury Theater on the Air. Mm-hmm. It was one of the lowest rated programs across all radio, all networks. It was broadcast on CBS. It was on broadcast on Sunday evenings, which is, you know, sort of notoriously sort of dead night. It had no sponsors, no advertisers. Basically, CBS paid just because they had to have something on the air, right? Right. <laughs> they couldn't just have dead air. So they paid uh, Wells to produce this, but they basically left him alone because it wasn't a money earner it attracted no interest, and it was um, scheduled. It aired opposite one of the biggest hits of radio at the time. It's called the Chase and Sanborn Hour, and this was a show that starred Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. And I don't know if modern audiences even know who these are. Edgar Bergen was actually uh, Candace Bergen's father, but uh, he was a comedian back in the '40s, very popular. He had a ventriloquist dummy that Charlie McCarthy. And Charlie was this very sort of wisecracking guy, you know, instead of a lot of funny, corny jokes, basically. I, would, I shouldn't say funny because they're not really that funny. But. Well, the thing, just to, just, to, just to jump in here, the thing that puzzled me 
in a lot of ways was I, I, I did, they must have had a live audience or something. But it's like how does a how does a, how does a ventriloquist act translate to radio? It's like half the appeal of the whole thing is is the visual element. I know it's it's absolutely crazy. It's like you think about it. You had millions and millions, and it was this monster hit. I'm saying this was sort of like a Seinfeld or a Friends type show. Right. I mean, this was just huge. It was a variety show, and you're right. It was in front of a it was in front of a big studio audience, and uh, but you're right. It's just the whole idea is that you're basically listening to the same guy talking two different voices, and you know that when you hear the quote unquote dummy talk, it's really the same guy, and you can't see it. And it's, again, it's just one of those sort of baffling things. I it would never go over today, obviously, but back yeah. then it was it was incredibly popular and. Yeah, this is what Wells was up against, and that's why he didn't have any sponsors, and that's why hardly anyone listened to his show. And uh, because no one listened to his show, CBS kind of left him alone. They didn't really – they sort of would peek in every now and then, and they would have someone read the script to make sure he wasn't saying anything obscene, you know, something like that. But for the most part, he was just left alone, and it turned out to come back to bite them because if they had actually been paying a little more attention, they might have <laughs> realized what was about to happen. But, yeah – I think that's one of the reasons why the sort of theories that it was all planned and it was a hoax, there was just no way because, you know, if you were going to hoax something on purpose, you would choose a program that was, you know, popular, that people were actually listening to. And as we'll talk about in a second, you know, it was a real fluke as to why, you know, a, a sizable number of people listened to uh, the War of the Worlds in the first place. That's part of the urban legend of the whole thing, I think, in a lot of ways. People think that this was like, of course it did turn out to be like this big event, but people, I, I think people are under the misunderstanding that going into it, it was this big event, when really it kind of just slipped under the radar and then exploded. Exactly. Exactly. And the other part of it, which I think is interesting, is that uh, you really do an amazing job, obviously, of, of sort of taking us minute by minute through this whole thing. And, I mean, we don't need to get into the sheer depth of it because we want folks to pick up this book because it's outstanding. Uh, but what I thought was interesting, and it sort of debunks another urban legend of the whole thing, is that there were numerous indications that this was fiction. People seem to think that, that, that from beginning to end, that you wouldn't have been able to figure it out, I guess I think people think, which isn't the case at all, because right at the beginning they introduce it as fiction, they have a station break in the middle, and then at the end, there's like a whole monologue from, from Wells talking about, uh, you know, the world is not invaded. Good luck. Have a happy Halloween or something like that. Where it's, yeah. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. It's just amazing. That yeah. It was it's like because, that. Because, and this goes back to, you know, again, sort of the mechanics of how this hoax happened. Really, there are only about, I'd say about 20 minutes, an hour-long broadcast. There's really only about 20 minutes in the broadcast. Uh, that is made up of this sort of fake news report. The set, the entire second half of the program, it takes place, you know, weeks and months in the future, and he's walking through this wrecked, you know, New York City, and he's, you know, finding all these things, and it's obvious that it's a drama because it's it's happening in the future, and um, so th there's only about a 20 minute window where it's this incredibly realistic broadcast, and so what happened was. I'll just give you sort of the brief version. <laughs> Basically, um, the Chase and Sanborn Hour, everyone tuned in to listen to it, and for whatever reason, 
they just had a lousy show that night. That's basically what it was. Um, it started at 8 o'clock p.m., and I've often said, you know, I think the real sort of villain of this entire uh episode is whoever was the producer for the Chase and Sanborn hour, you know, I don't know who, what his name was. I actually tried to track it down. I couldn't find it because he decided here you have millions of people tuning in to hear uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy tell their corny jokes and that's all they want to hear. And for some reason, this producer decides to start off the show with uh, Nelson Eddy and Nelson Eddy was this uh, crooner. Uh, who's very popular in the 30s and 40s, and they had him sing, uh, it's called The Song of the Vagabonds, and it was this sort of weird song. It was from some operetta written in the 1920s, and the song had to do with some revolution in 15th century France. And it was this <laughs> weird way to start off a program, and so what happened was, People tune in and they start hearing Nelson Eddy start warbling this horrible song, and uh, they reach over and they start turning the dials, and they miss the opening of the War of the Worlds, which, as you say, they they state very clearly, "Hey, here's a dramatic adaptation tonight. We're going to do the War of the Worlds," you know, starring Orson Welles, you know. So here we go. But the vast majority of people missed it because they were listening to Chase and Sanborn. So they're you know, Nelson Eddy is just horrible and they turn the they turn the dial and so they come in a few minutes into the middle uh, into uh, the program and they just hear what sounds like a reporter. And he and the actor who played the reporter does a great job. I mean it sounds it sounds like he's out in New Jersey and he's watching these uh these mar- this strange Martian machine sort of land on the ground, and then it sort of this monster crawls out and starts killing people. And as absurd as it sounds, even as I say it, I say, well, this sounds crazy. Who's going to believe that? But to an audience who whose only medium of entertainment you know was radio, and they were you know they trusted radio implicitly, um, and they missed that on the beginning. It turned a lot of them, you know, they, they really believed, it's like, could this possibly be happening? And again, I think you had a very vulnerable population too. You had people who were just very scared about war and, um, they started to, uh, very quickly panic. The captain is firing with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted and the professor moves around one side. Studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and at least right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lords are turning into flames. Oh, the whole field by the woods of cars. The gas tank, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. It probably goes to 
to sort of the culture of the time because, you know, I think nowadays something like that happens. If it was like a real breaking news event, like a 9-11 type thing, I think like given the oversaturation of media we have now, your, your first inclination is to flip to like all of the different news stations. You know, you're like, well, put on Fox, see what they're saying on that. Put on MSNBC, you know, and it, it probably speaks to sort of the mindset of the people back then that it was – once it, once they were locked in on that, they didn't flip to the other station to find out what they were reporting. Because you almost wonder, like, why didn't they, you know, why didn't they flip to NBC instead of CBS to check during, you know, see what see what the hell was going on? But apparently, I think some people probably did, but obviously a lot of people didn't. And there wasn't the assumption that every uh, every network would have its own reporter out in the field. You know, it made kind of sense. Okay, well, there's this CBS reporter. He just happened to be there when it happened. And they, like, you know, today we would think, okay, well, Fox is there, CNN, NBC. We'll get all these multiple feeds. But I think it was, um, yeah, it's like, okay, there's a reporter there, and he's just telling us what happened. Now, some people did, you know, turn around and uh, scan the dial and uh, didn't find anything else. And that's, you know, not everyone was fooled, but a lot of people, it was just such compelling Radio, you know, you didn't want to turn away, right? Um, and he, you know, Wells used it very well. He would just have the report like cut off, and then they would just go to like bland orchestra music, and that would play for a while. And he would be like, "What's going on?" You know, and it, it sounded like a networking chaos that didn't know what to do. And uh, he he just he played it very well. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, as I said, it's tremendous stuff. Uh, even hearing it today, I encourage folks to go out and and check it out on YouTube. Just punch in "War of the Worlds" nineteen thirty eight, and uh, you can hear the whole thing. Now, you mentioned in the book at one point, and I'm probably going to get the roles of uh, these technical people wrong, but at one point, um, you, there was a station break in the middle of the show at about thirty five past the hour, and. Uh, somebody got a call like right before the station break, and and they wanted to go in and either stop the show or break in and sort of like admit that it was all a show and uh one of the producers stopped him from getting into the to the room to stop it that's that that that, that I'm telling that part right right okay. like they wanted to go in and they uh, they wanted to go in and just say once again hey don't worry this is this is not real but i think it was houseman who stopped him from doing that okay uh i guess the the, the, the piggyback question onto that is I presume up until the phone call came in, they absolutely had no idea that there was this panic uh, underway. But following that and following the station break, which I presume, uh, you know, they had kind of maybe a minute or something like that to decompress and get ready for the next half of the program, were they informed that this was going on? Yeah, they knew around halfway through. When they, about 8.35 p.m., the show breaks for station ID, and they, they knew during that time, this when they got, the, they got a phone call. Houseman got a, I think, uh, got a couple of phone calls. One was from, you know, this sort of very angry person. I think it was a mayor from some city or somewhere saying, what are you doing? And then he also, um, the producers heard from the CBS switchboard. They were in the main CBS headquarters in New York City where they were broadcasting, and the switchboard was basically melting down because people were just, thousands of people were calling and saying, what is going on? And so they had some ideas like, uh-oh, something is going on. And so then, but they didn't really have any time to react. They just had to get back on and do the rest of the show. And then, as you mentioned earlier, at the end of the program, you know, Wells comes on. And I think this is where people get the idea that it was a trick, that it was um, intentional. Because
because he basically says, oh, this is our own radio version of sort of dressing up in the sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying, boo, because it was the night before Halloween. Hmm. So he kind of laughs it off like, hey, it was just a joke. Um, and I think that was done, you know, obviously to just um, sort of calm people down a little bit. I don't know if that was written beforehand or not. It's sort of one of the, one of the questions. But, um, yeah, they definitely knew about halfway through, but they didn't know the extent of it until after the broadcast was over, and they really had time, you know, and then people from CBS could come in and tell them, like, hey, here's what's going on. Also, once the broadcast was over, they had New York City police officers who basically stormed the studio (laughs) (laughs) and was basically very angry and uh, looking for, you know, who's doing this and why are you doing this, and they started confiscating things. And, you know, when you see police officers burst through the door, that's when you kind of know things have maybe not gone the way you expected. (laughs) Yeah, that's generally a good indicator of things. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that kind of concludes the program, and... At that point, just essentially kind of like all hell breaks loose, right? Because, I mean, we're talking like this is like 9 p.m. On a, on a Sunday night. There's plenty of time for the aftermath to, to unfold, you know. We're not talking like 1 a.m. where they're like, we'll deal with this in the morning. This is like a still pretty crazy time uh, after, the program, uh, the, after the program aired. Right. And um, it was sort of perfect for the newspapers because they were, you know, it was happening in New York and all the, the big uh, – New York City newspapers and the wire services, all of their guys were in New York. And remember, newspapers hated radio because radio was taking away their market share. Radio was taking away the dominance of the newspapers. Suddenly, people had another source for news and entertainment. And so newspapers in general hated radio. And it became clear very quickly, all right, we just got this this arrogant, you know, 23-year-old Broadway genius in there, you know, <laughs> who just scared the heck out of half of America. And so they're just – and these reporters were just, you know, drooling at this spot. And so they really went after it hard, and they really pushed it. And because it was only 9 o'clock at night, they still had a few hours before they had to um, file their stories. And this is back when, you know, they had, like – you know, morning editions of the paper and evening editions. So they had plenty of time to um, write stories and interview people and get it in the papers so that people would see it when they uh, when they woke up the next morning. So, again, this sort of timing was just perfect. Right. And it's amazing that the network, they essentially kind of threw Wells to the wolves, Wells and Hausman, but especially Wells, uh, you know, because not only did he have to face the reporters that night, but then they threw him out there the next morning at a press conference where, again, you can see this stuff on YouTube. It's amazing. Um, yeah, and he looks horrible. Yeah, and he looks I really haggard think, and just worn out. Right, and I don't think it's an act. I mean, in, in later years he would claim, oh, I was just trying to act very innocent. And you look at it, and he looks like a scared 23-year-old. You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, he just yeah, he's really been run through the ringer. But you're right. I mean, it's fascinating because... CBS, this huge broadcasting network, they basically, you're right, they hung him out to dry. They basically said, okay, you go out there and you explain what you just did because we're not, because we're really, really afraid. <laughs> we're, <laughs> yeah. afraid we're afraid that we're going to get sued, and we're more afraid that we're going to get our broadcast license revoked because the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, had a lot of authority, they still do, but even back then, you know, they could they could take down a station or a network if, if – they thought that they had done something improper, or at least they could try to. It was it was not a good thing for CBS at all. So you're right. 
they threw Orson Welles to the wolves. And he did the best he could. I think he actually came up, if you read, I have a transcript of his statement and some of the interviews that he did after that. I think he did pretty well under the circumstances. You could see why he was such a good actor. You know, he was very erudite. He came up with, you know, very, you know, just great. It was just a, a great performance. He did the best he could. Um, well, absolutely, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Now, to separate the... Again, to go back and sort of separate the fact from the fiction, I mean, everybody's heard about the chaos that resulted from the broadcast, um, but you've done an amazing job in the book of sort of going through a whole bunch of different areas and regions of the country, and you don't have to do all that here and now, but, I mean, give people sort of an idea of what, what the, you know, what the frenzy really was like, uh, as opposed to maybe what they might think it was like. Sure. Sure. Well, I think one of the big uh, misconceptions, I think, not so much today, but certainly back then, but even some people may still think this, I think some of the rumors that came out were that people had killed themselves because of this. They were so afraid of being invaded by Martians that they killed themselves or uh, either intentionally or they ran off the road. Um, there were reports of, you know, serious injuries, people in uh, car accidents and all these horrible things. And this is what the reporters, this is why Wells looked so horrible at that press conference because the reporters had just been telling him this stuff <laughs> for like eight hours straight. And honestly, I think they probably knew a lot of it wasn't true, but they didn't care. And so he thought that there were really, you know, probably uh, dead people and dead bodies sort of littered across America. In fact, no one died. There were no serious injuries. I think one person reported a broken arm because they fell down a staircase. But even then, it was sort of like, well, did you fall down a staircase because you were afraid or did you just fall down a staircase? Right. Um, but um, what we do know is that um, many, many people were frightened. And the big question, and this has been a big controversy over the years, you know, how many people were actually frightened? And there's been some research done on how many people actually heard the broadcast. And these numbers, um, a lot of people dispute these numbers today, but there's a researcher at Princeton right after it happened who um, he was the first one to really dive into this. And he came up with an estimate that between 4 and 6 million people heard the broadcast. Now, they heard portions of the broadcast. They didn't start out listening to it. They turned over to it mm-hmm. when the Chase and Sanborn hour turned out to be horrible. And so between 4 and 6 million people heard it. Of that 4 and 6 million, maybe maybe 1.5 million uh, thought it was an actual news broadcast and were frightened somewhere around there. But the important thing is um, what's been called the Paul Revere effect. It really doesn't matter how many people heard the broadcast. That's not the point. The point was that the people who heard the broadcast, many of them, then ran out and told other people what was happening, what they thought was happening. And so it sort of spread like wildfire. It's sort of one of the first examples of viral marketing, but it's sort of not in a good way. So, you know, they sort of harp on the fact that in terms of the actual population of the country, not a lot of people heard it. But it didn't really matter because when you've got someone you trust, your mother, your sister, your brother, your friend, who's running to you in tears saying, you know, the Martians are coming. I just heard it on the radio. <laughs> you know, and then that person tells someone else and then that person tells someone else and so on. So you can see how it it, um, it spread. Now, was the entire country in a paralysis? No. Uh, but were many, many people in many, many cities uh deathly afraid for a couple of hours, and did it cause a lot of uh, turmoil? Yes, absolutely. 
Right. And, and plus, you kind of have, uh, I guess you could call it like the no-hitter effect. You know, they always say, you know, if some guy throws a no-hitter and there's, you know, maybe 3,000 people there and the stadium holds like 30,000 people and they're always like, oh, you know, 20 years from now, everybody's going to claim they were there. You know, exactly. And, and exactly. You're yeah, looking like point. I was looking at the at the broadcast on YouTube today, and you know, within the first like ten comments, someone's like, "My grandpa heard it, and he went out on this porch with his gun." And right. So, so it's like maybe he did, but part of me's like maybe he just told you that because he was around when it happened and remembered the Fuhrer, and it makes for a better story if you were freaked out by the whole thing and ran out with a gun rather than bemused by the whole thing. Exactly. And, you know, I my, I tend to think because, you know, this researcher, his name is Hadley Cantrell, he made a really great point. He said that, you know, he had to survey people. He had to, he you know, he uh, did a lot of interviews with people and uh, phone surveys and things to find out, you know, to come up with this number of how many people listened to it. But he did it about a month after the broadcast. And by that time, a lot of people were embarrassed to admit that they had listened to it and that they were frightened. So a lot of people, when these when these um, uh, pollsters called them and asked them questions, a lot of them he thinks just flat out lied and said, "Oh no, I didn't listen to that," or "Oh, I listened to it, but I knew it was fake." So because um, you know there was a big ridicule effect, um, people didn't want to be seen as stupid, and so the actual number of people who listened to it and were frightened may have been you know, much larger. But you're right. I think there's definitely that sort of effect where a lot of people, I've heard the same thing from people, and it's just sort of like, wait a minute, did not everyone, you know, have this amazing experience, you know, where there was, uh, you know, people running around with shotguns and, and things like that. But right. there was definitely some, uh, there was definitely a lot of frightened people. And um, I go, as I say, I go into it in, in in detail in the book, there was one tiny town in, uh, named Concrete, Washington, which is like the greatest name for a small town I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> Concrete, Washington, where <laughs> they just had the worst luck of all because just as the story was getting going around like 8.15 or 8.20 and just as the Martians were invading and these people in this small town were listening to the broadcast and they thought it was real, a transformer blew in the town and all the electricity on their lights went out. And so they were they were cut off, and you know, uh, so they uh, suddenly had no power, no electricity, and they thought they were being invaded by Martians. Oh God! <laughs> so it was just this uh, sort of horrible, horrible thing. I'll tell you one more. My favorite comment I found this. It was a telegram um, that I found in the National Archives, and a man in New York City. He actually sent this telegram to uh, the FCC commissioner. Um, the day after the broadcast, or I'm sorry, the chairman of the FCC, he sent it to him, and it he sent this message, and he sent a $1 payment along with it, and the message said, please accept this dollar for making possible and endorsing the Mars Invasion Program, which scared my mother-in-law out of a year of her life. I wish I could send you more. <laughs> I just thought that was like the greatest, uh, the greatest response. And the other sort of in addition to kind of like that no hitter effect I was talking about is also you, you presume that it became such a talked about thing that nowadays you talk to your grandpa, or your grandma, or whatever, they're not going to admit that they were actually listening to the Chase and Sanborn show and miss the whole thing. You know, exactly. everyone's going to be like, oh, of course I heard it. It was, 
<laughs> oh, it was unbelievable, you know. And right. So it's uh, as time goes on, it gets even more skewed, where it's, people think that like everybody in the country was listening to this thing, but that's not the case at all. But a, a good percentage were, and a percentage of those people were pretty freaked out. And what's interesting, you know, it doesn't take a lot to start a panic. That's the other thing, too. Hmm. Um, and the question is, well, yeah, was, you know, the country didn't come to a standstill, but it was still, it was a big deal in, you know, every major city, you know, and really when you think about it, you know, if you got people in New York City running out into the streets and people in Los Angeles and Oakland and, you know, Cincinnati and Cleveland, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a big deal. Oh, absolutely. And and as you point out in the book, the, the technology was so rudimentary with the communication system that... You know, if, if there was going to be a, a real invasion, <laughs> that would have been the ideal time to do it because uh, nobody could get through to the authorities at all in all these cities and everything because all the phone lines were completely jammed. Right. So it's 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 just uh, it's, it's hard to imagine, I guess, that that period of time and, and that night itself. And, and in the aftermath, I thought it was interesting. It, it, this sort of like this progression of emotions that you that you detail in the book. You know, it goes from obviously the initial fear then it turns to this embarrassment of being frightened and fooled which then leads to this anger at at wells and and the radio uh network and in the radio industry fueled on by of course the newspapers and then thankfully i guess uh and you can kind of like flesh out sort of this progression but then you know the anger subsists and then it sort of turns into this sort of like almost appreciation for what went down yeah, I think what happened was that there was really, for a few days there, um, you know, Wells and Houseman, and, I mean, they were legitimate, they had a legitimate concern that they were going to be arrested, um, that there was going to be some sort of, definitely there was going to be some lawsuits. You know, something was going to happen because, uh, you're right, you, you tracked it just perfectly. It started out, people were afraid and they were embarrassed and then they were angry. And people don't like being fooled or thinking they were being fooled. Mm. And so, and at the same time, and you had the newspapers sort of stoking the fire, and because uh, it was just great, it was a great way to sell newspapers. Um, but what happened was around, I'll uh, say about a week later, around November fourth, um, there was a very influential newspaper columnist. Her name was Dorothy Thompson, and. Um, she was very, she's almost completely forgotten today. She was very famous back then because she did a lot of reporting on what was going on in Europe. She's actually one of the few American journalists who actually interviewed Adolf Hitler back in the early 1930s. And um, she was just very well-known and very widely read. And she wrote a column about the broadcast. And Orson Welles and John Houseman and a lot of the people involved in this said, you know, when that Dorothy Thompson column came out, it really kind of saved us because there were, for a while there, this really could have gone either way. This could have turned ugly, but she had such influence on the sort of intelligentsia and the, the sort of quote unquote, you know, the, the smart guys and the, uh, the people in Washington, especially the politicians who were, you know, calling for censorship measures and, you know, the networks should have to, you know, bring their programs, you know, before a federal board so they could be approved, you know, before they were broadcast and all this crazy stuff. And Dorothy Thompson came out with a very sort of out of left field analysis. And basically what she said was that Wells, Orson Wells, kind of had done the country a favor because he had shown what can happen to people 
when they're very when they're very stressed when there's you know when there's social unrest around them and shown how powerful mass media can be and how dangerous it can be in the wrong hands now she wasn't saying that wells was had done anything wrong but she's saying look you know if if this type of thing can set off this sort of reaction imagine if someone was really trying to you know uh, stir unrest hmm. or to start, you know, a war or something. It's like, look, we have to really look at how how much trust and how much faith we put in the mass media and just really how important it is. I mean, radio is a very powerful tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And we've just seen how it can be used just by one guy in a studio, you know, in New York City. He can scare half the country. So, um, but she said it was the perfect demonstration, she said, is that the danger is not from Mars, but from the theatrical demagogue. And it was that column, really, it was just like it just took all the air out of the balloon of the people who were trying to, you know, sort of have Wells hung in the public square, so to speak. Yeah. Um, it was, it really had an effect on people, and um, it caused them to really think about it in a deeper way. It's like, okay, what can we learn from this? You know, how can we make sure that something like this doesn't happen again? And that was really, I think, a, a real turning point. Exactly, because you really, it, it changed the paradigm of radio and, and, and the media, really, like forever in a lot of ways. Because uh, it, I think, as you point out, I don't know if it was you or, or, or Thompson that said, you know, it sort of stripped the naivete away from the American people as far as uh, what they were getting via the media. Right. It is sort of, um, it was a hard lesson for people, you know, but it's like, okay, look, you know, and I think it just it forced people to sort of look at themselves from a slightly different perspective and say, look, you have to be more careful. Um, you have to be sort of aware of, you know, the situation and how, how you can be manipulated and how entire, you know, populaces can be manipulated because really she was saying like, look, this is what's going on over in Europe, right? Hmm. With Hitler and how he's managing to um, just persuade these, these you know, millions of people to follow him and do what he says. And so she's really saying, look, this, we have to be careful here, but this, he actually, Wells had, had done everyone a favor by just exposing just, you know, how, how easy it is to start a mass delusion. That was the phrase she used. I was trying to find it there. How easy it is to start a mass delusion. And it really, uh, as I say, it really changed people's thinking about it. And the sad and scary part of it all is, is that 75 years later, we need another wake-up call like that. Right. And I think this time around, it's the Internet, right? Wouldn't you agree? I think. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I could see that. The Internet is the most powerful, and, you know, Twitter and and things like that. I think you're exactly right. I think we've <laughs> you know, I think one of the reasons why it's been so popular over the years, the Brock, is, is people kind of like to look back at the past and sort of make fun of people as being, you know, boy, those people were so unsophisticated back then. But we're in the exact, you know, we're in a very similar position now. You know, we have a shaky economy and, you know, unrest in the Middle East and elsewhere, and... Um, we're still very vulnerable to um, how media can be um, manipulated. Um, you know, you have that great phrase, kind of scary phrase to my mind, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. You know, that uh, I think one of uh, President Obama's chief of staff said, you know, right after the financial crisis, you know, that sort of shows what sort of the people in power think. You know, it shows how they think. Yeah. 
and how how these how people can be you know crises and how people's fears and worries can can be manipulated um, through the use of technology, be it a radio or a computer or or a smartphone. Right. That's the you know, like I said, it's sad and scary that for the people who aren't sort of hooked up to the underground media or the uh, the non mainstream media. They need that wake-up call in a lot of ways because they just believe whatever they see on Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. It's it's you know it's scary in a lot of ways. It's coming right. kind of yeah. back to square one. I give the example in the book, just a real quick example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, the Onion. You know that satirical yep. website yeah. that does the, sort of the news parodies. Um, well, they they sent out something on their Twitter account a couple years ago, basically saying that um, the Speaker of the House had you know with that a gun and he was holding some children hostage in the, <laughs> in the House of Representatives and um I mentioned that in the book and that actually scared a lot of people. And people actually thought that this Speaker of the House had gone insane because they didn't realize of course the onion was being satirical, but people I mean it was they were looking on their smartphone, this popped up and people started sending it to them and saying, Oh my gosh, have you heard? Just exactly like what happened with the War of the Worlds broadcast. And of course, the Onion ended up having to apologize. Um, and but many people brought up and said, "Oh, wow, this is War of the Worlds all over again." So, yeah, we're we're still we're not as smart as we think we are. I think if any time that you can be reminded that we as humans can be reminded that we're not as smart or as powerful as we think we are, I, I think that's a good thing. I think humility is a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. Just, uh, you know, for the people out there that are like, oh, I couldn't be fooled by something like that, wait till April 1st, because most news sites put out some bogus news story. And, exactly. you know, the, the better written it is and the closer it is to fact between fiction, you know, more people fall for it. I mean, I'm more than once I've fallen for an April Fool's story that's like close enough to be true where you're like, oh, my God. And then <laughs> later in the day you're like, oh, man. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's still absolutely possible nowadays. Now, obviously, as an avid listener of uh, BOA Audio, you're, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with how War of the Worlds has been adopted or co-opted in, in a lot of circles, you know, the conspiracy circles and the UFO circles that, you know, this was uh, a setup, this was a plan, this was done, uh, you know, to, to generate mass hysteria or to study mass hysteria or, uh, you know, later on, we've, we talked about this off the year, we can get into it a little bit now, but, you know, I think that it was later on used as a justification for the UFO cover-up, regardless of whether it was, you know, organized in the first place. But you, you argue in the book that, you know, this wasn't a plan by the Council on Foreign Relations and the Rothschilds to, you know, uh, orchestrate mass hysteria in order to study it or something like that. Right. And I say that, you know... Reluctantly, I mean, I love a good conspiracy. Exactly. Theory. Yeah. And I preface this by saying, "Boy, I wish this were true," mm-hmm. but unfortunately, um, you know, the facts just don't bear it out. I mean, the, the basic conspiracy theory surrounding the War of the Worlds broadcast was that it was um, it was an attempt by the Rockefeller Foundation, right? The Rockefellers always show up in these um, oh yeah conspiracies, and that it was um, it was. Uh, they cooked this up with Orson Welles to deliberately frighten Americans because they wanted to see how people responded. They wanted to analyze and figure out how to best manipulate mass media to understand how how these large populations uh, reacted under stressful situations. Now, 
I, you know, have no problem believing that a lot of people will be interested in that kind of data and that a lot of people would want to do something like that. Um, but it really wasn't, there's, there's just nothing to back it up. The only thing that, um, really, the, the, the reason why there's some sort of connection made is because the Rockefeller Foundation, they created something called the Princeton Radio Project in the year before in 1937. And it was um, housed at Princeton, and it was basically a think tank, and it was just sort of created to um, study how radio was affecting American culture. And these things, you know, these types of societies and think tanks are funded all the time by right. rich people. But uh, when the War of the Worlds happened the next year, uh, the researcher who you know, analyzed it and wrote a book about it was Hadley Cantrell from Princeton, and he worked for the Princeton Radio Project. And so people will say, aha, so he's the one. He was, you know, kind of in on it. But obviously he didn't, he didn't have anything to do with it. This was just uh, they were analyzing it because that's what, if you are studying radio's impact on American culture, you kind of can't ignore something like the War of the Worlds broadcast. Right. Um, and also, Wells, you know, there's just zero evidence that Wells in any way, you know, colluded with anyone to do anything because he was barely there during the week that this was being done. As I say in the book, he was off, you know, rehearsing for an, a Broadway play, and he was, you know, having multiple affairs, you know, with, with people. <laughs> and he was just, he was a busy guy. He had better things and, to do. Yeah, he had other things to do, <laughs> and uh, he just wasn't, he didn't really, he swooped, He kind of swooped in at the last moment like he always did, and sort of, you know, Saturday and Sunday afternoon sort of created this thing, so, uh, but it really, you're right to say, I mean, this has really become, you know, I think a cornerstone of, of UFO culture and conspiracy culture, um, but unfortunately, in this case, there's in my opinion, there's really nothing to it. But boy, I, I wish there was. Right. A great story. <laughs> and like you, like you point out about the uh, the quote there from the guy about never let a crisis go uh, unutilized. I think I probably butchered that. But go to waste. Yeah. yeah. It, I think that, that that mindset probably also applied to this, where of course the. There's a wealth of information there to be understood about mass hysteria and how it happens. So, of course, someone would be interested in it. They didn't need to manufacture it, but they certainly would take advantage of, of it happening. Exactly. Exactly. And I, but I, you, you can't really fault them for that. Or, oh, no, no. Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's human nature, you know? And so, I would, I, yeah, I would never be like, it, it would be criminal not to study that kind of thing. <laughs> right. And, and before we were kind of talking about this, you know, before we started the interview too, I think, you know, one thing, one impact, you know, very real impact that the broadcast had was I think it sort of, I don't know what the right phrase, maybe it kind of softened people up a little bit and made them a little more receptive to the idea, uh, again, you know, of things coming from out of the sky and that there's something going on up there that we don't realize. You should say, you know, Wells in later years has sort of bragged that he was the he was the guy who really kind of started this whole UFO thing. Even though and technically these Martians they flew down from Mars and they they flew down in these pods and they landed they in the ground. So I mean technically they were unidentified flying objects, right? Hmm. And so uh he could he could sort of lay claim to that. But you know, you think nine years later when uh Arnold came around in his uh his description of these uh, flying saucers, I think, my opinion is that I think the public was more receptive than they would have been had, there, had this War of the Worlds broadcast 
never happened. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it sort of brought the idea of aliens and UFOs and, you know, contact, it brought that into the mainstream. Because you think about it, before that, there was really no mainstream movie or book. Science fiction wasn't mainstream. It was it was the province of, you know, sort of pulp fiction and it's what little kids read and it was Edgar Rice Burroughs and, you know, you sort of read it under covers at night with a flashlight. Yeah. But people weren't making blockbuster science fiction movies. Their science fiction movies were few and far between in the 1930s. Um, and for that matter, it was, you know, it was pretty much straight ahead dramas and comedies and musicals. So, um, but, so I think that, you know, the War of the Worlds broadcast has sort of just brought the idea of UFOs and aliens and all of that into popular culture in a way that we just really hadn't seen before. And I think it started the ball rolling uh, for a lot of things that would come later. And as I mentioned to you before we started the show, and I kind of alluded to it here, I, I definitely think that it was used, again, you know, using utilizing the crisis in a way. I definitely think it was used as justification down the line for the UFO cover-up in a lot of ways. I believe it was even cited in one of these, you know, uh, internal reports or something like that, that it was like, you know, based on the War of the Worlds thing, we can't be just announcing willy-nilly that there's aliens here because people are going to freak out, so. Oh, right. Yeah, it was, it's the perfect, ex- it was both the perfect excuse to uh, not disclose any information, because you're exactly right. Well, look what happened when you had just a few, basically, you know, a fraction of the American population um, thought we were being invaded, and you see how it, you know, it, it, it tore up the entire country. Can you imagine if everyone, all at once, simultaneously, <laughs> you know, was were told that you know aliens are in fact real? I think you're absolutely right. It became the ultimate excuse, and it also became the ultimate weapon with which to ridicule people who believed they uh, had seen something in the sky, that they had uh, yeah. witnessed something, because the the quick, you know, almost automatic comeback was that, well, you're, you know, you're some of these crazy people who's going, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, gullible, right? You're right. like those people who heard the broadcast and thought we were being invaded. And the people who, you know, originally saw, you know, witnessed these UFO sightings, um... You know, I've heard some recordings that um, MUFON and some of the UFO organizations made to their their hotlines back in the 60s and 70s, and you hear a lot of these recordings of people calling in and and reporting sightings, and it's kind of unnerving. It's it's kind of uncomfortable because these people are scared out of their mind. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and they're really like their their entire worldview has been shaken, and I think it's very easy in that type of situation for people to say, oh well, you know. You're just you're just overreacting, just like those people did who who heard the uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast. So yeah, I think it's been used as both an excuse and uh, sort of a weapon. Right, right. Seventy five years later, the footprint still affects us today. It's amazing. Exactly. Now, just to we're set, we're heading toward the close here. Uh, just to sort of like. I guess in a way, wrap up the story. Talk a little bit, sort of, about how 
Wells reacted to all this in later years. I thought that was interesting. You really you develop it quite a bit. You detail it quite a bit uh, in the book, where it's sort of like you can never really get a read on 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 what exactly his thoughts are on the whole thing. Sometimes he seems embarrassed by it. Sometimes he's sort of like the carnival barker, where it's like he he's jumped on the story that it was all intentional and everything because it makes him look. You know, I, he, you know, he doesn't let he doesn't let uh, facts get in the way of a good story. So, I mean, that's the perfect way to put it. As I said before, I mean, he is a trickster, and he loved. I mean, again, it's it's just it's so frustrating and infuriating. You're trying to write a book about this, and he he'll say one thing one day and one thing the next. And what you have to remember about Wells is that he was a showman first and foremost. And what I think he would do was if he was in a serious interview with, you know, say, uh, a respected broadcaster, he would take the position that, well, of course I had no idea, and this was just sort of a terrible thing, you know, because I'm such a sophisticated person. You know, he would sort of play to his audience. Mm-hmm. But if he was on, like, a talk show, uh, an afternoon talk show or something, and there's a live studio audience there, he'd sort of give kind of a wink and a nod and say, Oh, yeah. Well, that was interesting what happened back in 1938. Gee, I wonder what happened there, you know? And he would sort of kind of take credit for it and kind of say that it was all a hoax. And then the next interview he did, he would say, oh, no, it wasn't a hoax at all. It was just a really unfortunate accident that happened. So you're right. I mean, but he would just play it for all it's worth. Whatever advantage he could get, you know, it really just depended on the situation. And if he thought he could make himself look good by saying he did it on purpose, he said he did it on purpose. And if he, if he could make himself look good by saying it was just, oh, it's kind of embarrassing, I don't really even want to talk about it, let's <laughs> talk about some of my more, you know, important and influential works, then he would he would take that tack. And so, you know, he was just a trickster to the end. I mean, uh, he was just a guy who, you know, again, loved sleight of hand, he loved fooling people, and he, he really reveled in it. I mean, I think there were times that he... It irritated him because he wanted to be taken more seriously. But I think when he would go around and sort of try to promote his movies, I think that's when he was more willing to kind of, you know, kind of go along with people who wanted to who wanted to talk about it. Right, right. It's. I think that probably has a lot to do with sort of the the mystique of this whole thing. You know, the, how the how the facts and the fiction got so blurred after seventy five years. You know, when the, when the creator of it all. Never really gives you a straight story about it, um, right? He did. He did more to keep this legend alive than anyone. You yeah. Know? Even though he claimed he didn't want to have anything to do with it, you're absolutely right. It's the fact that he was just—you could never pin him down, and that he was always sort of, you know, sort of backtracking and saying, "Well, this happened, maybe that happened," and yeah, it was just—it was just great. I mean, Ringling Brothers, you know, Barnum and Bailey couldn't have done it any better than he did. <laughs> <laughs> Now, where can folks pick up When Mars Attacked? Where, how can they get their hands on a copy of this book? Uh, it's it's available on Amazon in Kindle. It's in the Kindle format. So um, if you have a Kindle reader or if you have an iPad, you can get the Kindle app for free or any sort of smart reader, or um, you can even read it on your computer. Uh, but they can get it there. And if they want to learn more about it, they can go to uh, whenmarsattacked.com. And I have some... I have a press kit there. I have some a sort of overview of of the entire uh, event. If you want to learn a little bit more about it, I've got an excerpt from the book. You know things like that. Nice, nice. And uh, 
as you said, you mean you've been working on this thing for three years or so. What's next for David Accord? What do you have uh, planned for your next uh, project? Well, I just finished uh, this weekend, actually. I just finished. I, I wanted to do something a little less uh, taxing. Uh, <laughs> this was, took so much time and effort, but um, kind of related. I'm a big fan. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, horror writer H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his going back many, many years, and... Uh, I just, I just wrote as a brief, it's sort of like 10,000 words. It's sort of like a, a long essay or kind of a monograph. It's about, it's, it's called The Other Mr. Lovecraft. And it's about Lovecraft's, one of Lovecraft's uh, relatives. And Lovecraft, as you know, he has a very interesting history. His, his family tree is filled with, you know, madness and suicide and all this stuff. A lot of people kind of speculate about how his, um, his uh, genealogy sort of impacted these crazy, um, and incredibly scary stories he wrote. So I've written a book about uh, an incident uh, that, that occurred in the late 1890s with one of his uh, relatives, and it's just fascinating. It's about uh, suicide and uh, spiritualism and a lot of interesting details about the uh, spiritualism craze of the 1890s um, when it was, you know, that was the hot thing, people trying to uh, contact uh, spirits and, and deceased loved ones and holding seances and things. And so all of these things kind of converge together. And just the fact that it happened to someone, you know, in Lovecraft's uh, sphere is just really interesting. And so uh, it's called The Other Mr. Lovecraft. It's uh, it's available on Amazon as well. I just finished that. Oh, nice. And um, I've got probably half a dozen other ideas. I just got to I have to commit to one now <laughs> and just sort of, you know, stop sort of dancing around. But yeah. uh, I don't know what's next. And uh, hopefully, as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, hopefully we're coming to people here on the 75th anniversary. What kind of big events or specials or, you know, any any anything big, you know, to commemorate the big 75th anniversary uh, in the works? Yeah, well, probably by this time, people are listening to this on the anniversary, which is fantastic, uh, fantastic idea to, to do it then. Um, you've probably heard a lot. It, I'm, I'm sure it's going to get a lot of media coverage. Yeah. Um, I know that there's a lot of um, local theatrical companies that are going to be doing recreations of the play, you um, know, sort of on their own in front of live audiences. And also, um, there's a show on public television called The American Experience. Mm-hmm. And they are going to also have a special uh, documentary on the War of the Worlds broadcast. And I think it might also be, you know, on or around uh, the anniversary date. But I think oh, nice. people are going to be seeing it everywhere because, you know, 75th yeah. anniversary is kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's kind of an oxymoronic question in a way because we're, we're I guess we're a part of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that, that <laughs> exactly. commemoration. So people might be listening to this and they may be seeing it everywhere already. And I wouldn't be surprised if... You know, if you're listening to this on October 30th, that uh, chances are you turn on your radio tonight and some station somewhere will be playing that broadcast. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it, yeah. So definitely, and if you can, folks, definitely check that out because it's amazing. And as I said, it holds up amazingly well. And with that said, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, David. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's right in the wheelhouse of uh, where BOA Audio is going and has been going for the last few years, this sort of uh, the marriage of the paranormal and the real and and the fringe elements of the esoteric. And I absolutely loved the book, When Mars Attacked. Folks, go out and pick this up. You will learn so much about the War of the Worlds broadcast and 
the events that led up to it and how it all sort of came together. I mean, you really will get a, a fantastic understanding of, of what went down on October 30th, 1938, and you will definitely be so much more informed about this infamous broadcast. And that's thanks to David here. So thank you once again for coming on the show, pal. Well, Tim, I can't thank you. Those are, ah, man, I'm blown away. I don't know what to say. Those are some very kind words. And I just say, as someone who's been with you from the beginning, it's just been oh, just fantastic, fantastic to, to be on the show with you. And thank you for taking the time to, first of all, read the book, <laughs> and then to, to ask such great questions. I, I really appreciate it. Well, the pleasure was all mine, pal. And uh, keep in touch, and hopefully we'll get you back on the show to discuss your other stuff. That'd be great. Thank you very much. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 8. Big, big thanks to David Accord for coming on the show and providing a tremendous amount of enlightening information about the War of the Worlds. You can find out more about his book at www.whenmarsattacked. Pretty simple, all one word, when Mars attacked. Once again, I cannot put this one over enough, folks. It is tremendous and as hardcore BOA Audio listeners, I ask you to help out a fellow BOA Audio listener. And if you're interested, pick up When Mars Attacked. You will not be disappointed. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And stunningly, it is the first BOA Audio listener feedback of the season, even though we are up to episode four. That is, of course, because we do not feature listener feedback on the live programs. So I thought it was high time to dig into the BOA Audio mailbag and read some emails from the BOA Audio listeners. The first one comes from Mike in France and Ken in Saudi Arabia. And here's what they have to say. Hey Tim, me and my brother drank a case of beer and ended up doing this jingle for you. Hope you like it. We enjoyed doing it. Love the show. Mike in France, and Ken in Saudi Arabia. P.S. Visit my site at offtheloop.com. I'll post a What's Up review on your show. Bon courage. Not bon voyage, bon courage. I'm not sure if that's an actual French expression or just something that Mike made up, but I like it. So thank you for writing in, Mike and Ken. Chances are, if you tuned in to the very end of the last edition of BOA Audio featuring Peter Robbins, you heard the jingle that was created by Mike and Ken. I could not believe it when I first listened to it. I was completely blown away. It starts out slow and sort of uh, intriguing, and then it gets wacky and hilarious and awesome and just strange, so... Tune in here to the very end of the show, you'll hear it. We're going to use that officially now as our closing song on the program because I was just totally thrilled by it. And it kind of captured the weird, wacky nature of BOA Audio. So kudos to Mike and Ken. See, some good things can come from drinking a case of beer. And the BOA Audio end show jingle is the perfect example of that. The next email comes from Joey, who posted on the Banal of America Facebook page. He says, Proud to say I've listened to every episode, some of them twice, and a lot four or more times. One of the most comforting podcasts to me. There should be a club for listening to every BOA episode. Joey. 
Thank you for writing in, Joey. I'm amazed that some folks have listened to shows four or more times. Although I can imagine they would, because there are some episodes that are tremendous, and if I didn't create them and produce them, I'd probably go back and listen to them four or more times. Some shows I've listened to maybe three times between the editing and fixing up various aspects of it, but I gotta give kudos here also to Joey listening to every episode. I'm going to assume that includes the much maligned and controversial baseball episodes. That's where you really separate the tremendously hardcore listeners from just the purely hardcore listeners, the people who tune in even to the infamous baseball episodes. So maybe Joey can clear that up and get back to us on that. And since there is no club, I guess we'll call him the founding member of the Every BOA Audio Episode Club. Congratulations, Joey. The next message comes from Lawrence, who also posted on the BOA Facebook page. He says, According to my calendar, Ruck's giving is nearly upon us. This will give you a chance to discuss something that, remarkably, has never come up in all of your interviews. The Bionic Man versus Bigfoot. This came out in 1977 and has an incredible resonance with real events. First, Bigfoot is pals with the ETs. Also, the ETs are meddling with our nuclear program. The ETs have underground bases and also abduct people. You might be too young to remember this. I was about six when it came out and it blew me away, but I bet Rux has a lot to say about it. The full episodes used to be on YouTube, but alas, I don't know where they can be found for free anymore. I believe Hulu has it, but on the other side of their paywall. Please look into this and be sure to ask old Bruce Rux what he thinks. Lawrence. Well, you're right, Lawrence, uh, that I am too young for that one, because it came out in 1977. I was born in 79, so it was actually negative two when The Bionic Man versus Bigfoot first aired. I take it it was a TV show, because you say full episodes, and uh, I'm completely out of the loop on this one, but I will definitely look into it. I've posted it here into my Rux Giving Notes for this year's Ruxgiving, and you give me a good chance here to plug Ruxgiving, because we're only about two days away from November 1st, and that means we're really only about three weeks or so away from Ruxgiving 2013, and once again, I'll turn over the question compiling duties to the BOA Audio listeners this year. Stay tuned to Banal of America and BOA on Facebook, where I'll have more information on that. I can almost assure you, as long as Bruce's schedule looks clear, that Ruxgiving 2013 will be a live edition of the program. But, as always, stay tuned to BOA for more information. Speaking of which, I've got a couple of emails regarding the live program. I should probably tackle these as well. First one comes from John. He says, Your last couple live shows were great. Markedly improved. Except for every time I try the live button, it doesn't work. Still just MP3s. Aren't you guys standing by to go live when someone clicks the button? Maybe the button's broken. John. I presume he's making a joke here, because we're not trapped inside of a little room waiting to reprise the live show every time someone clicks the button. But I wanted to mention that, because I thought it was kind of amusing that he asked 
that. And I appreciate your kind words about the improvement to the live show. It's been a learning process. I really enjoyed it. It's been a couple of weeks since I've done a live show, and I'm dying to get back on the airwaves, if you will, and do another live program. So hopefully the next edition of BOA Audio after this one you're listening to right now will be another live installment of the show. More information on that as we get closer to closing out this edition of the program. And I guess really uh, the gist of, of what I should say here in response to John is there's only a small window of time when you can listen to us live. That's between usually 9 and 11 p.m. on Tuesday nights when we have a live show scheduled. So if you're trying to tune in Wednesday afternoon or Saturday morning, you're not going to be able to hear BOA Live. Speaking of which, the other email comes from Vicky in Hawaii who says, I was so excited to hear you live on the air, but then when I got to the site, I am being forced to give my email in order to listen. After that, I am being conned into giving my credit card. God, Tim, I'm not going to do that to listen to you live. I'm deeply bummed, almost crying, well, feeling hurt. Please make it stop. Aloha, Vicky in Hawaii. I have no idea what Vicky is doing here, folks. All you got to do is click the link that takes you to the live program. Now, when I first previewed BOA Live on the season premiere here of BOA Audio Season 8, I told you to look for the next episode link on the homepage. But as you'll be hearing in a few moments, we've got a whole new layout at Benal of America Here's how you're going to find the live show going forward if you want to listen live. Just go to banalofamerica.com and it will be the very first image on the homepage on our carousel. It will say live with the date and the time. All you've got to do is click that picture and it will take you immediately to the page where the program will start paying. You don't have to give your email. You don't have to give your credit card information. I'm not sure what link Vicky was clicking, but she was clicking the wrong link because it's pretty simple, and you don't even have to sign in or anything. The show should start playing once you get to the page. And if all else fails, you can't figure it out at all, just go to blogtalkradio.com and punch in Banal of America. That will bring up the page that should easily guide you to the next live edition of the show. If you have any more troubles, folks, reach out to me, and hopefully I can help you get tuned in to BOA Live. And with that, we will pull the strings and close up the BOA Audio Listener Feedback mailbag here this week. I'll definitely try and keep it going on the taped installments of BOA Audio because... I do enjoy reading these emails and responding to the BOA Audio listeners. If you'd like to reach out to me for future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback, there are a myriad of ways to do so. Simply go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. Or you can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Additionally, if you want something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum 
theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground, where we discuss the esoteric and pop culture, as well as whatever else is going on in the world. I would be remiss if I did not mention that I'm on Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That'll bring up my profiles. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, let me plug Benal of America on Facebook. We're up to 1,095 likes. We're kind of hovering there. We've plateaued a bit. We actually lost some likes. I don't know what I did wrong, but people unliked us. Other folks filled in the gap, so we kind of dipped and went right back up to the plateau of 1,095. Get us to 1,100, and you get the shout-out on the program. So if you have not done so yet, punch in Banal of America on Facebook, or click the Facebook link at Banal of America and like us. Up next, please allow me to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. As I mentioned earlier, maybe I should have led the outro with this big news, but chances are you've already figured it out. We've got a whole new layout at Benal of America, kind of more of a blog layout, but we've kept the spine of BOA intact. So if you are very familiar with Benal of America and you head on over to the website right now, it's going to look different from the way it used to, but you should still be able to find BOA audio very, very easily. And the cool thing about BOA 3.0 and the new blog infrastructure is that it's going to allow the BOA staff to post their own columns. They no longer have to rely on me to do all the formatting and uploading. They can just post their own stuff at the website whenever they want. And I'm in the process right now of getting them all registered and getting them all ready to go to post their own stuff. So soon, hopefully... They'll get their legs under them and start posting some cool stuff at BOA. And finally, I can also start bringing in other folks that I've wanted to have right for Banal of America, but I've not been able to really put it all together until now. There's going to be a lot of exciting stuff going on at BOA 3.0. In addition to the freedom that is afforded to the BOA staff, all of the posts at Banal of America now allow for comments on the website. So this is kind of fourth wall breaking in a way, but right now you can go to the website, you can click on the link here for David Accord's episode of BOA Audio, and then right in there underneath you can post your comments on the episode. Then I can add those into the pile of BOA Audio listener feedback stuff or respond to your comments or questions right there at Benal of America. So essentially we're going to add another layer of interactivity to Benal of America. 
And one more thing, I want to take a moment here and thank Ray Weigel for all of his work putting together BOA 3.0. It's been a long process, and that's not Ray's fault, that's my fault, because this project would get tabled for weeks and months, and I'd have to come circle back around and be like, all right, I'm ready to take the next step on this project. It just took longer than I ever thought, and that was really on my shoulders. So I, 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 a lesser web designer probably would have walked away months ago, but Ray was just overwhelmingly patient with my insane schedule and working with me, so I cannot put him over enough. Thank you so much, Ray, for all of your help getting BOA 3.0 up and running. And, of course, big thanks to Jeremy Boston, who once again provided the awesome graphics at BOA. Thank you so much, guys, for your contributions to Banal of America. You're helping us move forward into a whole new era, and I am very excited about BOA 3.0. Up next comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Banal of America franchise. How do you do that? Well, you're in luck, because it is very, very simple. Just head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a donation via snail mail, it is very easy to do so as well because we have a P.O. Box. Just send your donation to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you can find the complete address at Benal of America under the PayPal button. If you do send us a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America. And please include some form of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation, either an email address or a phone number, so I can give you a call or shoot you a line and say thanks for helping out BOA. As always, folks, it bears repeating, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Been All of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, as I said earlier, I really want to do another live installment here of Season 8. I've got a pretty good list of folks that I need to reach out to and see if I can schedule for the show. In the event that their schedules do not work, we still have a tremendous after-death communication episode in the till. It was supposed to come out last week, but between a crazy work schedule and the amazing run of the Boston Red Sox here in the MLB playoffs, I have had almost zero time to devote to Banal of America. Thankfully, all of that is winding down, or will wind down, in the next couple of days, and we can really punch through these last two months of 2013 
with some tremendous programming. So we've got the ADC episode in the pipeline. If I cannot schedule anybody for a live show next Tuesday, we will roll out the ADC episode. I should have an announcement either way on what the next edition of BOA Audio is for you by this coming Friday. So in the next 48 hours or so, check out Banal of America or BOA on Facebook to find out who will be on the next edition of BOA Audio Season 8. And on that note, we close the book on this installment of the program. Thanks once again to David Accord for coming on the show, and thanks to Vicky, John, Lawrence, Joey, and Mike, as well as Ken, for their contributions to BOA Audio Listener Feedback. And finally, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio Listeners. I told you this was going to be a season to remember, my friends, and so far it has been. Gone are the days of one or two or even three episodes in a month. Looking at the calendar right now, this is our fourth BOA Audio episode for October, and hopefully we can keep up this pace going forward throughout Season 8. And all of that is thanks to you folks out there and your enduring support of the program. I cannot thank you enough for being the fuel that drives the paranormal mothership. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.